Okay. All right, we'll get there. Okay, let's have another go. Can you hear me now? Is everything all right? If you've got a Bible, can you turn to the book of Joshua? We're going to be looking at that today. Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. Now, before we get into that, let me say a little bit about myself. Um, As well as doing this job, which I love, I also have another thing I do, which is I'm also a karate teacher. I actually... um, teach karate a couple of nights a week, um, teach children, and I also train myself with the other instructors as part of the club we're a part of. And if you know anything about um, karate or those kind of martial arts things, colour's very important. And what do we know about that is the, is the belts that they wear. Have you heard about the coloured belts? Have you ever seen them? Now, in karate, what's the most important belt? What's the most impressive one that you get? Uh, that's right, the black belt, which I have. Just saying which I have. Now, I let you know this for several reasons. One, just don't mess, okay? Just, just saying. But this is the important thing. And I've, this week, I've actually been grading the students. They all go through the grading every, you know, a few times a year. And you get them ready and they go through the grading. It's a very tense time because they all have to get ready and they have to perform. They have to do their bits and pieces. And they're little, so they're not very good at it. But you kind of, you know, you judge them on their age and where they are. And you encourage them and you help them. And they do well. And they're so excited because once you pass, you get a new belt. And new belt's a new colour. And that's huge for kids. They just think they want the new colour. That's what they're after. They want the new colour. They want the new belt. And my son Levi uh, graded this week and he passed. And he's got, this is his, actually his new belt. Shh, he hasn't got it yet. Don't tell him. It's his red belt. And what it means when you get a new belt, you get, you get to stand in a different place in the class because you line up in the order of your grades. So if you're a low grade, what's the bottom one? White, novice, beginner, nothing. You're down here. And as you go up the grade, as you've learnt... You get higher and higher and you, you get to stand in different places. So the, the colour that you wear means something totally different. It's transforming actually. You can go from being here, you pass your grading, okay, and now I can line up here. I'm higher than them, I've got a new belt, I'm a higher grade. And that's what the kids love. They love having the new belt, the new colour, because it means they're one step further along the ladder. They're, they're, they really enjoy that. And what we're going to look at today is a story about how life, things get transformed by colour. A particular colour comes up and we're going to see a life transformed, actually through a red cord and what it means for a person in this story. Now, we're going to look at the book of Joshua. We've started this new sermon series, we're four weeks in now. Four weeks in to this, we're going to preach through the entire book, we're going to cover it all, and Joshua's a very exciting book. Lots of exciting things happen, we have uh, the parting of the Jordan, we have the sun standing still on the side, there's an appearance of the Lord to Joshua, there's the walls of Jericho coming down, it's very good, and we are going to look at all these things um, through it. I've put out some resources for you to help you, go and have a look at them. Um, and we've had the intro sermon, we've come to the background on Joshua, we've looked at the first chapter in two halves about how the Lord has called Joshua and the people to take the promised land, take their inheritance, go into the promised land. He gave them two commands, he said, arise and go, you're to take what I have given you, it's yours, go grab hold of it. And he's also said, be strong and courageous, he said that multiple times, isn't he? What were they to be strong and courageous in? The word of God, what God had spoken to them. It wasn't be strong and courageous and don't do crazy things. 
do some extreme sports, go and pick some fights. No, no, be strong and courageous in following what I have said to you. Follow my commands, follow my words. And if you're strong and courageous in them, what would happen? They would be granted success in all their endeavors. So they need to be strong in the word of God, what he'd said to them. Hold on to that. And then we saw last week when Jeremy was talking to us about the second half of chapter 1, about God said, I will be with you by my presence. You must always have my presence with you. It's important that you be unified as a people. You're in this together and that you, again, to be obedient to my word. That strong and courageous came up again. So that's where we are. And now we're getting into the kind of the action is beginning. And we're um, going to read the bit um, in Joshua where it's kind of this start, it starts to get exciting now. Things happen. This makes a good TV movie, this section of Joshua. It's one of the ones a lot of people know about. So it's going to appear on the screen and I'll read it to you. Joshua chapter 2. Okay, and Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies. You don't want to say that too fast, that name of that place. I'm just saying. But that's what it's called, Dirty Minds. Saying, go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the game was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up onto the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid out in order uh, on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. We have heard about how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Shion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And she let them down by a rope through the window for our house. Oh, miss, I missed the last line there. Can you go back? Go back one. Can you go back? There you go. I missed that last one. For our house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. Next. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when you come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And then you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers and all your father's household. And if anyone goes out the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on your head. But if you tell this 
business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your word, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they said to him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. All right, this, first, this section, chapter 2, that we've just looked at there is in the, um, the first five chapters of the book, which we've, we've noted are the preparation phase for taking the land. They haven't actually entered the land, which they're going to take, which is the purpose of the book, but these first five chapters are them getting ready to get in there. So we're in that section, and the scene has moved from Joshua, all first chapter focus on Joshua and things God has said to him, now into Canaan, which is the land they're going to him, and a woman named Rahab. She is the focus of this chapter. Other than Joshua, she's the only person who's actually named in this chapter, given a name, and uh, she is a fascinating character. This story is kind of full of excitement and hold your breath moments. What's going to happen? Are the spies going to be found out? But this woman, Rahab, that God uses... um, protects them. And Rahab's important. She's the first Canaanite convert to the God of Israel. She's the first foreigner in the land as they're going out who actually says, I will serve and worship the God of Israel. And we know about it because we studied the book of Hebrews. Who turns up in Hebrews 11? Rahab, verse 31. And she's commended for her faith. And so she's like, this is a key person, and this is her story. We've heard about her in Hebrews. There's obviously something impressive about her to get written out in the New Testament amongst all these list of heroes. Rahab is now one of them, and we're going to meet her and see what happens. And there are three things we're going to look at. We're going to look at implied faith, explicit faith, and active faith on the behalf of Rahab. All right, let's go through the passage. Verses 1 to 8, implied faith. Okay, it begins with a bit of an aside. Um, it mentions this rude place, Shittim. Now, when the Bible mentions a place as a reason, doesn't do it by accident, why is it there? Why is that place relevant? Well, last time Israel were in Shittim, it went bad. It went bad for them. It says they were there, and it describes them as they prostituted themselves to the gods of the Moabites, and the women there came into the camp and seduced the men and led them astray. And as a result, God's judgment came on them wasn't a good time for Israel. We also find out, if we think about the story, Joshua is now going to send out spies to the land, which is just a smart leadership move. Recon the land before you take it. But what happened last time he sent spies into the land? It went bad. It went bad. Read about that in Numbers 13 and 14. He sent out 12 spies. Moses sent out 12 spies. They came back. Ten of them said, it's really bad. They're huge, they're big, they're strong, they've got fortified cities, they are just going to wipe us out. Two of them, incidentally one of them was Joshua, and the other one was his buddy Caleb, that we'll come to eventually. They said, no, we can do this. But the people all believed the ten spies, and what was the result of that? God judged them, and they spent 40 years wandering around the desert until they were all dead. So the beginning of this story, the history is really bad for the people of Israel. So as we begin, it's like, uh uh-oh, they're back in Shittim, doesn't work there. Joshua's about to send out spies, well, that's failed last time, 
everything, all the, all the kind of the portents for this moment are just bad for Israel. So that's what's going to happen. How's it going to, the big question that begins is, how's it going to go this time? Is it going to go any better? Now the spies are told to go out, infiltration mission. I don't know if they camoed up. I don't know what they did. They got the gear on, night vision goggles, and out they went. And Joshua particularly says to them, go and search out the land, but particularly go where? Jericho. Jericho is the first place they're going to get to. It's the first big city. It's fortified. It's huge. It's got a lot of people in it. It's going to be a massive obstacle getting in the land. You've got to take out Jericho. So he says, go check it out. They come there. They go to Rahab's house, which would probably have been a tavern or a way station for travelers. Um, so it was perfectly normal to kind of go in there. That's where people go. A lot of coming and going. People in and out. Uh, merchants maybe coming through. So it's a good place kind of to hide out and not be particularly noticed. So that's where the spies make a beeline for her. And then we're introduced to Rahab. And everything on the surface about Rahab is not great. She's a native of the land. So she's a Canaanite, so she's a foreigner. She is outside God's people. She's not one of the covenant chosen people of God of Israel. She's outside of that. She would have worshipped false gods of the Canaanites, Baal and Asherah and that light. So she didn't worship the God of Israel. She worshipped other gods. And if we know anything about their religion, it's not pretty. Horrible things that they used to get up to in their religion, sexual immorality, child sacrifice, just vile things that were totally offensive to the God of Israel and to the people of Israel and think, no, we don't want anything to do with that. They had evil practices. She was also a prostitute. And that means what it says it means. So that was her job, which violated a commandment right off the bat. It would have put her at the bottom of kind of the social ladder, So she wouldn't have been anyone of standing in that respect. So on the surface, there's nothing about this lady that would have hinted about what is going to come. So they come to her. She's obviously the the owner or the runner of the tavern. She's in there. The spies go in there hoping to hide out, not get noticed, blend in. And then what happens? It says the king of Jericho hears that they're there. We don't know how. We don't know. The author doesn't want to tell us. It's not relevant. But bottom line, the king of the city finds out that these foreigners who are coming into the land have snuck across. They're in the city. Find them. And not only do they know they're there, they know they're at Rahab's place. Uh-oh. They found out. You know, spy movies. You've seen the old Cold War movies. They cross the wall into East Berlin. They're trying to find it. And suddenly they're on them. They're on them. They're coming after them. What do they do? And so the, the soldiers of the king obviously turn up and they would have banged on the door. They would have come in and they say to Rahab and they say, Send, give up, turn over these men. Turn over these men to us. What would that meant for the two spies? Probably torture and then death. They'd have been pumped for information, not politely, and then they'd probably just killed them, probably horrifically. So it wasn't, wasn't good. But what does she say? She says, no, they're not here. They've gone that way. Can you imagine the cartoons? They went that way. No, they go that. So she sends the guards away the other direction. And if you read the text, it says she's already hidden the spies on her roof of her house where they're drying 
Um, uh, the flax, which would have been a common plant they'd have had there. They, the flax, the fibers in it were used for making uh, linen and clothes and ropes and stuff like that. So it would, it would have been around and they dry, dried them out and they'd obviously done it on her roof. And so she'd already hidden them under them. She'd hidden them under them, which begs the question, what made her do that? Two foreigners turned up. Their people are on the other side of the river. There's an awful lot of them. We know from the story they knew what was coming. So something made her choose this course of action. What? There's something going on with this woman. There's something happening inside of her that makes her choose to tell the guards to go the other way and to hide the spies and kind of almost throw her lot in with them. Then we go on to the next section. What happens in the story? What was implied now becomes explicit. And she speaks. We have a, now have a kind of a conversation between her and the two spies who've come in. And what she does, if you look at verses 9 and 11 there, you find some absolutely fascinating things come out of this lady's mouth. Because after, kind of, obviously it's getting a bit later in the evening, the guards have gone, it's still very tense, are they going to come back, are they going to realize what's going on? But she goes and has a conversation with the two men. And what does she say? She says, she says I know that the Lord, the first one she uses the name of Israel's God. So she knows something about their God, who it is, using the word the Lord. She's, so she, she, she's showing some knowledge about who it is. And the fear of you has fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. That's talking about her people. My people are terrified of you and your God. Whoa, so God's reputation has gone through the land. Something has happened. And she mentions two massive events in Israel's history. What's the first one? The first one is the parting of the Red Sea, where they had come out of Egypt. We read that in the book of Exodus, where the people of God had come out of Egypt, being chased by the Egyptian army. They're freed from slavery for the first time in their history, kind of living memory for hundreds of years they've been there in Egypt. The Egyptian army tries to follow them. They are crushed and wiped out. She's heard about that. And the interesting thing, that event, if you think about the timeline, took place at least 40 years prior. Because they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, haven't they? And then they're about to enter the promised land. So that's, an, in one sense, an old event. Many of you weren't alive 40 years ago. People like me. <laughs> Almost. But anyway, us young people, that, that's a long time ago, but they, it's in their memory. They're like, my goodness, there's, there's this is people and their God part sees. And wipes out pursuing armies. Then she mentions another one. Well, there's these two kings on the other side of the Jordan. This is a bit more recent. You find this in Numbers 21. Shion and Og. Not the best names, but that were their names. They were two of the kings. And, and Israel had wiped them out. They'd come out to attack Israel. They fought and just destroyed them. And that had been like, whoa, that's current affairs, that one. They're no longer there, those kind of two kings and their kingdoms. They've been gone, and so fear had then come on the land. And then we look at verse 11. What does it say? And as soon as we heard, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Here you go, look at this. For the Lord your God, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This is fascinating coming out of the mouth of a foreigner who would have had many gods in her religion that they had been worshipped for her life and her parents' life and beyond, and it would have been in the culture, and there would have been statues and, and ceremonies and all sorts. She said, but we know your God is the God of the earth 
and the heavens below. So she, she affirmed Israel's God as the one who was a ruler over everything, what's above and what's below. So he is the God over all things. And even that phrase that she uses, commentators tell us, is lifted directly out of the second commandment you find in Exodus. And it's repeated again in Deuteronomy. Second commandment says this, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven uh, above or anything on the earth beneath or that is uh, in the water under the earth. So she's basically saying your God is in control of everything and she's, she's quoting a commandment to Israelites. A commandment of their God. She's quoting back to them, effectively their scriptures, which would have been the Ten Commandments they had at the time, which would have been kept in the ark. So they got these things. One commentator says this. She was acknowledging that this God she heard about was the one and only true God. The only one out of dozens that she as a good Canaanite knew about who was worthy of worship and allegiance. She is making a confession of faith. She is saying this is the one true God. I see it now. I am seeing, I recognize, not the gods that I've worshipped, the ones i followed, I recognize that there is one true God, and it is Israel's God. And this is a foreigner proclaiming their faith and trust in God. This is an outworking of the Abrahamic covenant. You go right back to Genesis, where God promised Abraham, I will make your descendants what? Like the stars in the sky and the sand and the They will multiply and multiply. I will bless the nations through you. And here we have another foreign woman proclaiming, who this God is. We've recently seen another one of those, haven't we, over summer? Who was that? Ruth. We studied the book of Ruth, and we have another foreign woman, a Moabite, coming to proclaim Israel's God as the one true God. And here we have Rahab doing the same. She's confessing. In our parlance, she says she's becoming a Christian. She's becoming a follower of Jesus in what she's saying. And in response to her kindness of hiding them, she asked the spies to kind of swear an oath of protection of her over her household, saying, I'm, I'm throwing my lot in with you. Can you protect me? I know what's coming to this city. I know what's coming to this land. I know where this is going. I want you to protect me. She says, swear an oath. Now, oaths in that time were big business, serious business. They had huge kind of ramifications in culture. So this is not an idle thing. Not like, you know, just give me your word. For us, we can make or break our word almost at the drop of a hat. But for them, it was huge. And she makes this request upon her confession of faith and choosing to trust in her. And she's trusting in the providential care of God. And actually, God's sovereignty over all this. I know what's coming and I recognize who it is. I want to be kind of part of his people and look after him. And the spies agree. And they say, actually, yes, you and your family. And even they put their own lives on the line and saying, actually, we're going to look after you. We're going to make sure that you're okay and your family. Obviously, they had a condition. You can't betray us. Uh, and they said, we will treat you well. And so uh, Rahab, this woman, who's just the least likely person in Jericho to make a confession, is saying, yes, I will follow the God of Israel. And she's helping these two spies. And then the final part of the story, her active faith. Her active faith. Now, obviously, there's still, after all this great confession, imagine that. You're leading someone to Jesus on the roof, but actually there are guards outside who are trying to kill you. That's a pretty high-pressure situation. So she's, she said that, and they're like, well, we still need to get away because we're in a city, and they've closed the doors. 
How do we get out? We're still stuck here and we're hiding. We can't stay under the flax for ages. They'll eventually find us out. They'll work out that we haven't run off. So what does she do? She says, uh, the interesting note is that her house was somehow built into the walls of the city of Jericho, which means if you went out the window, you were outside the city. And she gets a rope and she, she, she puts it out the window they climb down out of the window and she says, go in the opposite direction. I sent the soldiers. I sent the soldiers this way. You go that way, hide up in the mountains. I sent them towards the fords where you can cross the river. You go up that way into the mountains and get away and hide. And as she's coming down with the rope, they kind of reiterate the promise. They have another conversation about what's going to happen. The spies give her some specific instructions. She says, I want you to tar- get all your family into the house. It's quite a long list, your mother and your brothers and your father and your sisters and whoever's with them get them all in the house I don't know how big their house was but there was a lot of people you're not to tell anyone what's going to happen and he says I want you to take this scarlet cord this red cord and I want you to tie it in the windows of your house so we remember which house you're in and if you tie that in your house you will have safety you will be okay if you go out of the house then basically it's It says, what, on your own head be it. You take your life in your hands if you do that. We cannot guarantee your safety. But if you stay in the house, you tie the red cords around the window, and and you will be safe when we come to take this city, which will happen later in chapter 6 when they're going to get around to taking Jericho. Now, what's the significance of the scarlet, the red cord? Well, commentators over the centuries have seen many things in here. We can look backwards from that point. What was the most significant kind of... um, a cultural ceremony in the lives of the Israelite people. It was the Passover, which would have happened as they left Egypt. When God broke them out of Egypt, the final plague was the death of the firstborn. When he finally, Pharaoh had had enough. Pharaoh would said, I'll let you go, I won't let you go. It hardened his heart, hardened his heart, and it's like, enough. I will send, I will pass over the land and throw down the firstborn. And as an act of faith, the Israelites had to, conduct the Passover, where they would take the lamb into the house, they would kill the lamb, they would cook it, they would eat it, they'd paint the blood on the doorposts and the lintels of the house. So as the um, gods passed over, he would see that one had already died in that house and he would pass over judgment on that house because it had already fallen on the lamb and they would be free. And as a result of that, the people were let free um, from Israel. And we see it here, if they look backward actually, that if you sty this red cord in your window you gather your family in as part of the Passover actually you will be spared the judgment that is coming to this city that is coming to this people um, from God for their sinful actions and practices it always also looks forward what what does it look forward to the final Passover lamb who was Jesus what did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus died at Passover. He was that ultimate sacrifice. And through his sacrifice, we can find salvation. And what's happening here in this house is that family, by Rahab's faith, would find salvation by acknowledging who God was. By tying that red cord in the river, by bringing them in, effectively hiding under the blood of that sacrifice, they would be saved in the future. And then what happens after that, after they've been let through and they've had that final conversation, it says the story ends with the, the spies evading capture. They went and hid in the mountains, waited for the guards to kind of come back, their pursuers, and they 
came down out of the mountains and went back to Joshua. And we basically have a, a kind of a full circle. They return to Joshua and they give their reports. And even at this point, you think, is it going to go well? I think they've got some good stuff to report back to Joshua. But last time this happened, it all went terribly wrong. And what happens, though? They deliver a good report. And it says, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away before us. A response of faith on behalf of the two spies coming into um, see Joshua into the camp. So the people are now poised and ready to take the land because they've received the report of the spies. Joshua's heard it, building faith. And we'll look at next week, a week after, about them beginning to enter the land and taking the land. A few points of application to finish. Let's learn from the example of Rahab. Three things I want us to take away. The first one, recognition of who God is. Recognition of who God is. Rahab had a revelation of who God was. She had known since her early years the gods of the Canaanites, all them, all their practices, but she heard about another. She heard about the God of Israel. She heard about what he had done to save his people, these great redemptive acts, pied in the seas, his power and his judgment in destroying the kings across the Jordan who had stood opposed to his people. She knew he was the one true God. He was the one who ruled the heavens and the earth and everything in it. He was the one who had dominion and power and authority over all things. All created things. He had made all these things. He knew, she knew he was working out a plan of salvation for his people, bringing them out of Egypt into that land. He, he knew what was coming. He knew that judgment was coming for those who wouldn't bow the knee before him. She knew what was happening. She realized who got it. And this flew in the face of her culture. Everyone around her, everything around her she'd seen in the land, everything around in the city would have said something different But she'd seen something. She said, actually, no, this is the one true God, the God of Israel. And for us today, it's no different. It's no different. We live in a world that says so many things about God. It says there is no God, number one. That's a big profanity. There is no God whatsoever. There's nothing. Science has disproved it. And, and you shouldn't be living like that. Militant atheism is on the rise. And actually that's one of the things we come up against. But we also find within that this kind of pluralistic soup we live in where people are almost, like, almost accepting in one hand there's nothing there. But on the other hand, oh, everything's there. You can believe whatever you want. It doesn't matter. You can take a pick and mix approach to spirituality. You can take a bit of this and you can take a bit of that. And you can mix it all up. And whatever works for you, you can do that. That's fine. Find your own truth, whatever that means. You can do that. It doesn't seem to matter. There's so much stuff swirling around that we can just partake of and imbibe. And that's just the kind of the culture we live in. But actually as believers, those who read their Bible, who know God, it says a very different story. It says a very different story. It talks about Jesus as the eternal God the Son who existed before the foundation of the world, always has been and always will be. be, He's the one who created everything, and through him, everything holds together. Everything's seen and unseen. Everything has its kind of finishing point and starting point in him. 
All the stars in the sky, our very bodies, everything, the planets moving, everything happens with him. The Bible says that not only is he God the Son and existed for eternity, but he was born of a virgin. And that means virgin. He was both fully God and fully man as he walked the earth. He was both completely divine as God the Son, but also completely human as you and I. Yet... Bible says he was without sin. He was without blemish. He was without imperfection. He never did anything wrong in thought, word, and deed. He didn't offend his father in any way through the, the actions he did or the things he didn't do, the thoughts of his heart. And we all know we fail in those areas every single day. We can't even live up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. But that's what Jesus did. He lived this perfect life. We know that his teachings are the very words of God. What Jesus taught all those years ago, you know, foundation of many civilizations today. They're still revered because they're the words of God. That's who he claimed to be. He wasn't just a good teacher. He was God the Son. And it's been revealed to us in his word, the Bible we have, that we can learn from these teachings. We can read them. Anyone can. They're plain there. You can all read them. We can all access them. This huge question, who is Jesus? It's the first question. Interesting. We talked about the Alpha Course. One of the first talks is simply called, Who is Jesus? You've got to make up your mind because he makes some pretty darn radical claims about who he is that you can't just write him off as a good teacher, as a wise guru, as someone who said some helpful stuff a while ago, or some unfortunate man who's, you know, the tide of opinion went against him and he, they, they killed him and wasn't that sad. No, that's not what the Bible, the Bible says he, he, it was all part of a sovereign plan. And that's who God is. And so the question that presents to us today is, have you made your mind up about Jesus? Have you made your mind up about who Jesus is? Have you read what the Bible says? Have you made that kind of statement of, yes, I know who he is? Or is it something you're still exploring? Because it's one of the key questions, if not the key question of your life, is who is Jesus and how are you going to respond to him? And we found from Rahab, she made her, made her decision. She said, I know who this God is. I know who your God is. I know who's coming. And this will have an effect on my life. So the first one there is a recognition of who God is. It's why we sing the songs we do to remind us weekly, this is who God is. This is what he's about because we forget so often. But knowledge is not enough. The second thing there is a wholehearted commitment to follow Jesus. Having recognized who God is, what did Rahab do? She chose to throw a lot in with him. She chose to throw a lot in with him. Knowledge isn't enough. The Bible very clearly says the devil knows who God is. Hasn't helped him. The demons know who God is. Hasn't helped them. Knowledge is not enough, but a wholehearted commitment to following him. If you think about what Rahab did, it is staggering. She chose, because she recognized who this God of Israel was and who was coming, the one who created everything, the ruler of the heavens and earth, these people that had done incredible, mighty things, was coming into the land. She chose to turn away from her entire old way of life. Her culture, her gods, her upbringing, her people, her city, all those things. He said, actually, I'm, I'm willing to turn away from all of that 
because I know who this is. I know who this is. And she chose to put her faith and her trust in the God of Israel to save her because she knew her old way of life couldn't save her. She chose to put her faith and trust in that scarlet cord to save her. She chose to put her faith and trust in that blood to save her from what was going to come. Because she knew her old way of life, there was nothing in there that could. There was nothing in there that could. And for believers, as us as Christians, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means. Being Being a Christian is not something you add to a busy lifestyle. It's not something we add to enhance our life. It's not like we need to lose a bit of weight, get fit, get a new wardrobe, get a new job, move out. It's not something we add to to try and just enhance our life, get our ticket punched for the afterlife. Think we've got that sorted, we can carry on doing what we're doing. No. It means turning away from everything that has gone before. It means turning away from all the things we knew and putting our faith and trust totally in who God is and what God has done. It means putting it totally in Jesus Christ for our salvation. The Bible says very clearly that we've all fallen. We are all sinners, it says. It means we've fallen short of God's standards. We're all imperfect, and he is perfect and holy and above and different, and we're not, and we deserve punishment for the things we've done. We all know that because we've all done things wrong. We know what we've got away with. If people really knew what was going on inside us, they wouldn't want to know us. We're all aware of that. We live with that. The only way through that is through Jesus Christ because he lived the perfect life. He died the death that we should have died on the cross. Then he rose from death victorious and now rules and reigns in splendor and says, you can come and know me by just trusting in what I've done. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to add to it. But it's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you everything. And by his blood is the only way we're saved. By that red shed blood. That's why Christians like to talk about the blood a lot. It's a bit weird, isn't it? You know, think, are you guys nutters, you know, the blood? But the reason is because it represents the sacrifice of Christ for us, in our place, for our sins. And as a result of that, we turn away from this old way of life, we reject it. What happens? Well, we enter a new community. Rahab, she joins the people of Israel, we find out later. She enters this new community, this new people with its practices and its cultures. She would have celebrated the Passover in years to come. She would have been part of that people. She would have been connected to that. As Christians, we join the people of God who are the... That's not a trick one. The church. The church. We join the church. We become part of that. And that's the worldwide, age-expanding church plus the local expression of congregations we have. We become part of God's people. How do we enter that? What's the first thing we do? We get baptized. Throwing our dying to our old way of life out of the water. New life. That is not a divine suggestion. That is a divine command. We are all to do that. Representing, joining this new people. We get involved in this new people. We become part of the community. We get to know them. We have our life groups here that sort of express that and what we do. Then what do we do? How do we remember what's happened to us? We have our kind of other thing we do, which is the bread and the wine, which is our way of remembering that. We do that in our small groups. If you haven't done that in life groups, do it this week. Share the bread and the wine. Remember what Christ has done for us. Maybe we'd love to do that this week. Share bread and wine together in the group and tell your stories. How did you come to know Jesus? How did you? They are always faith building and uplifting. 
How did God save you from a life like Rahab's that was just going nowhere and bring you into his people? Everyone's story is different, but everyone's story is powerful because it's a transformed life. It's a completely transformed life. And you might think you just had an ordinary life, but it's still a story of salvation and how God broke into that. And so they're brilliant to share. And then the final thing, final thing, it needs to be outworked in practice. It's no good knowing who God is. It's no good saying, I'm going to follow Jesus, and then that coming to nothing. It's no good just like being enthusiastic, like a New Year's resolution. That time is coming, isn't it? When many people will take New Year's resolutions, and then by the 8th of January, they will fall in abject failure. You know, like, Ugh. it's not like that. It's not just something you do and then you kind of give up. Following Jesus is something we make a wholehearted commitment to, then it outworks in practice in our life. For Rahab, that, would have, that decision would have affected her entire life, and not just her life, the life of her family and children and ones to come. It would have had an outworking on the generations. She left her own people. It would have been costly for her. I read in my Bible readings this morning the last part of Luke's Gospel. Um, not last, sorry, not last part of Luke chapter 9 in the Gospel, where Jesus is talking to people who are asking about following him, and he, he's saying, you say, you've got to leave it behind. You don't put your hand at the plow and look back. You make this wholehearted commitment. People are saying, yeah, but I'm just going to go. And he's like, no, you come, you follow me. You give everything. You have to take up your cross. You have to, to carry it. You have to count the cost. And for us, following Jesus should affect every single area of our life. It's not something we bolt on and add on. It should have a profound effect through everything. It should cost us everything. For Rahab, literally, she risked her life. Because what technically had she committed? Treason. Against their own people. That's what, it would have, that's what it would have, they could have portrayed it as. If the newspaper headlines had found out, they'd have written that. But she was chosen, choosing to follow the one true God and throw her life out. And it would have cost, us, cost her everything. She'd have had to leave it all behind. And what does this mean for us in our day? Following Jesus should affect everything. It should affect how we handle our money, one of the biggest issues we have in our modern culture. Money, possessions, wealth. We did a five-week series a while back. If you missed that, catch up on that. But actually, it should affect how we handle our money. It's not our God. It's not what we live for. It should have a profound effect on how we use it and how we serve it and how we give to the poor and how we serve others with it and what we give to the church and and how we use it to bless others. We don't live it for us. It's not ours because it belongs to God. It should affect our relationships, how we treat people, how we welcome new people in, how we love and care for those who look different to us, who sound different for us, who act different to us. Uh, we actually are quick to forgive and we don't let roots of business come into our life. But we go after and turn to mend relationships and seek to kind of build people into our community and love and serve them. It should affect how we work. We should be the best people in the world at doing our jobs, whatever God has called you to do. Because we're working for God. We're not working for a boss or a company or a government or whatever it is. We should be working hard with the passion God's given us. We should be honest and faithful with what we do. We don't bitch about our colleagues or our bosses or backbite or gossip or climb the ladder. We serve and we look to bring good and encouragement to people around us and bless the community. It should affect every part of our life, even in terms of how do we treat our friends or relatives. One of the things we want to do is we want to tell them about Jesus. Because it's the best thing that's ever happened to us. 
It's the most amazing thing. We want to communicate that. We want to show them that. We show it in actions. We also show it in our words and say, the reason I love you, the reason I'm for you, the reason I'm doing it is because Jesus has transformed my life. And I want you to know him too. There is no area in your life that is off limits to Jesus. There should be no area in your life that's off limits. It should have a touch on everything. The gospel should transform everything in what we're doing, just like it did with Rahab. And it should have a profound effect on those around us. Like Rahab's faith, Rahab's commitment, not only saved her, but also saved her family. Because they got gathered in. There was a, a commitment beyond her. There was an effect beyond her. All right, do you want to stand? Or I'll just keep going on. I need to land this. I need to land this. Can the band come up? I just feel in a moment here, there's some business some of you need to do with God. Some of us need to do with God. So do you want to just close your eyes? I'm just going to lead us in some prayer. And then we're going to let the band sort of lead us in some singing. And then we'll see um, what else God wants to say to us today. Okay. Just, just take a moment. I, we'll start as, as I went through the application. Recognizing who God is. I just want you to take a moment. And think about who God is in your mind, how you may have thought about him. Our temptation is often to belittle him and make him smaller than he is. Let your mind soar to the kind of the far reaches of our solar system and think, God made that. If some of you are medically minded, you can go to the smallest parts of our bodies, those little tiny cells that make us up and think, God made that. And everything in between. And not only did he make it, he's holding it together. He is the one who rules the heavens and the earth. He has no rival. He has no equal. He is the one true God. And we are his people are called to recognize that and proclaim that and let nothing take his place. There should be no one or nothing that gets in the place of God in our lives because we recognize who he is. And in response to seeing who he is, we are called to be as a people who make a wholehearted commitment to follow him every part of our life. And I think it's a good practice to do regularly. If you're not a believer here, you're not a Christian, I, I want to offer you that opportunity to get to know Jesus for yourself. Maybe you want to come and talk to him. We'd love to chat with you about what that means. But actually, it's the most important decision you'll make in your entire life. And for many of us here, we've already made that. But I think it's a good decision today. Maybe you want to just say that to Jesus. I choose to follow you today. I choose again to follow you. I choose again to give my life to you. I choose again to say, actually, I'm going to trust in you alone for this world. For everything I have in my life, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you for my life, for my family, for my job, for my finances, for everything I've got, Lord. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to turn my back on what the culture says and what the world tries to make me do, what the world tries to make me run after. And I'm going to say, you alone are my heart's desire and then when it comes to working this out because we spent most of our time not in this room out somewhere else doing other things family and jobs and life and everything else Holy Spirit of God I pray you make us a people that your good news doesn't terminate on us but affects the areas of our life Lord we choose now to submit our homes to you our relationships to you, our family to you, our children, grandchildren if we have them to you, our jobs to you, 
what we do with our leisure time. We, we choose to submit it all to you, God, and we say you alone are the one who gets to rule that, Lord Jesus. Lord, we ask you to give us grace to make your priorities our priorities in how we live our life. Lord, we ask you to give us opportunities to communicate your good news to others because we want them to know. Whether that's through actions, whether it's through words, whether it's just through prayers, whatever it is, God, we want to be a people who love and serve you first and foremost. God's people said, Amen. Amen.